Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Alex McClelland. He's an incoming faculty at Carleton University's Institute of Criminology and Criminal Justice. He's a longtime activist in life, law, and disease. I actually think, Alex, I met you so long ago in Montreal at the Canadian Association for HIV Research Conference. I'm thinking it's 2007 or 2008. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. That was a long time ago. And then once I came to a barbecue at your house with Adrian Guta. Oh, well, still having barbecue. So you'll have to come (laughs) next time you're in town. And what's so amazing is that I actually really wanted to study criminology. Oh, cool. Yes. (laughs) I never thought that I wanted to study criminology. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're here. Uh, So why don't you tell the listeners if I'm in an elevator with you Mm -hmm. and say we're going up for floors. I keep saying flights. No, you go floors and elevator. (laughs) Uh, How do you describe what you do? Well, I think what I'm interested in looking at is the way in which laws, specifically in countries like Canada, construct people as less than people, as persons who are less than persons, who through the practices of criminalizing someone, we then enact a whole bunch of legal sanctions against people or legal processes against people, which result in taking away their rights in certain ways and taking away their rights to freedom through incarceration, taking their rights to autonomy and privacy through surveillance and through forms of control. All of that results in those people being treated or being able, we're allowed to then treat those people as less than people, which means um, a whole bunch of different kinds of abuses can result. And so I'm trying to look at what criminalization does to different people and how it takes away their or strips them of certain rights um, so that they can be considered no longer persons. And then as a result, experience a whole range of horrific forms of violence. And so I looked at that in relation to HIV, um, and I plan to do that more broadly. But essentially, my overall project, this is way longer than four stories going on. So I don't know about you, but I sometimes I stay in the elevator <laughs> if it's a good conversation. So, but but my, my overall project <laughs> is really to like and look at the, the harms of criminalization and take that apart and really look at what criminal law or criminal processes do to people. And then the larger thing that is looked at is then the entire kind of criminal legal structure in liberal countries like Canada. 
or countries that are organized in the liberal tradition, Western countries that uh, have notions of rights um, that can then be taken away through legal processes and um, construct people as others, which means we can enact forms of violence against them. So that's kind of the overall project. Nothing too big. Just <laughs> no, just, just deconstructing the way that um, we we look at how we're organized as a society. Yeah. Um, which is I just like to ask small questions. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, I also uh, wanted to let the listeners know that we're going to be giving a link to your website and to your where people can find because I know. One thing I've noticed about your work is that you write for many audiences. So, and I really appreciate that you've written for Now Magazine, you've written for other magazines. I, I picked one up one time you wrote, and also for academic journals. So, just so yeah. people will know that you're able to and committed, I think, to uh, communicating these ideas to many different people, not just um, academics, which is great. Yeah, I, I think it's important, especially when you're, I mean, I come from an activist community-based, community-located background of people living with HIV. Not that people living with HIV are a community necessarily. We're all very different and dispersed all over the place. But uh, but there are communities of people living with HIV. I think for me, it's always more important to talk to people that my research is about and working with than it is to be talking to other researchers mm-hmm. um, because that's how you make change. And also talking to people that don't agree with you. I think it's really important. I think often in academia, we can just produce knowledge for each other in ways where we're just like, here's another thing that we all agree with that we all kind of knew was happening. <laughs> and I think it's like important to get ideas out in ways to talk to people who don't agree with us. I, I totally agree, and I have a lot to learn from you about that. So I'm going to show up to your house right now, not in real life because it's COVID, okay. but uh, <laughs> I'm going to show up to your house with a time machine, and okay. there's a space for two people. And so me and you are going to okay. physically distance, get inside the time machine, <clears throat> okay, and cool. you're going to take me to the time and place where you were like, I really want to start, um, I think... You said you come from activism, so I really, I'm inspired to make some change around, this is a problem that I recognize um, when it comes to either stigma and criminalization. So where would we go in this time machine? Um, I think we would go back first to the mid-2000s or early early 2000s, the knots, um, when I was working in a community organization, the AIDS Committee of Toronto. And I ran a peer support program for young people living with HIV, other young people like myself at the time. At that time, I was probably the lowest paid person in the organization. I had no training um, in anything. (laughs) I was just someone else living with HIV who wanted to do something to help help out other people. And I would give, uh, at the time, which was quite shocking to everyone because it was pre-prep, but we were giving um, positive prevention workshops, telling other young people how to have good sex while having HIV. And we talked sometimes about that people didn't use condoms and that they zero-sorted. And that was like a shocker. And we got a lot of attention about that. People were freaked out. 
But um, one of the people who went through our workshop, who was a good friend of mine, um, ended up being criminally charged because he, someone gave him a blowjob without using a condom, um, which he had learned during our workshop was considered a negligible risk. Um, and uh, he was actually living in a different province. So he was arrested by a SWAT team. Um, and then immediately flown to another province where he was incarcerated in uh, really harsh conditions. And then he went through a long process where he was um, detained under house arrest. And he was under that for like three years. Three um, years. Yeah, long time. And it really, really screwed him up. And I think at that point I realized that there was more at stake I mean, I knew of HIV criminalization before that, but it hadn't hit me personally. And so at that time, I knew there was more at stake and I knew that it was wrong and that we needed to do something else. Or we need to do something to end this. And at the time, the community organization I worked with was like, didn't know how to respond. There was not really any reaction or response or support or people were just kind of like confused and shocked. Um, and so... I think that was kind of the spark. If I had to go back into time, the spark where I was just like, this can't happen. That's been happening now for so many years. If you're saying that you were inspired because of this injustice over mm -hmm. a decade ago. I I was in Yellowknife when the they, they started to think about changing the laws. Mm -hmm. I guess it was a year and a half ago or something yeah. like that. And so they asked my colleague who lives there about talking about what it means for um, NWT. And so she's like, well, you should talk about it because <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about it, not obviously nearly mm -hmm. as much as you, but I've been thinking about it. And so I, I did talk to some folks on the radio and what struck me was that there's a very simple message that people were so surprised to hear. It's like, mm -hmm. one, people with HIV are being criminalized regardless of any <clears throat> possible risk or transmission. And mm -hmm. I think people weren't aware of that in the general public. Mm -hmm. And second, that criminalization is uh, not only unjust, but it's actually so harmful for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I had this conversation and, and I was like, no, you don't understand if you, he's like, well, if we don't criminalize it, won't people. So he was thinking that criminalization would help people disclose their status. And I was like, it's the exact <laughs> opposite. Why mm -hmm. would we want to trust that somebody would take this information and not use it against me or, you know, that, you know, so it was a very interesting, I hadn't come across, you know, really educated people who were so kind of didn't see that perspective that like, no, actually, if you decriminalize, people feel more free to have, mm -hmm. have open conversations about sex and about a lot of different things about their life. If things are not criminalized, like the yeah. criminalization is not the answer <clears throat> for us having open conversations about sex. So it was, so he was like, so you basically are saying that we should just decriminalize and people will have more open conversation with sex and we should just trust people. And I was like, and I was on the radio. So he was like, yes, <laughs> yes, we need to trust people will, will feel more free and liberated to have conversations about bodies and sex and mm -hmm. science. And, you know, what I, 
I hadn't realized there is this kind of gap between people's perspectives and their understanding of the law and then how it was actually impacting people. Yeah. I think I remember when you were there and that interview was good. I listened to it. I really liked hearing. (laughs) I often think of what Desmond Cole says when he talks about police responses um, and police reactions to people of color uh, resulting in their deaths, police murdering people of color in complex situations. And Desmond Cole says that our the white imagination thinking that we need to respond to complex social problems with police is a highlights a complete lack of imagination mm-hmm. on how we as a society should respond to complex social problems. And that there are people every day who respond to complex social problems with nuanced compassion and support, such as social workers and other people. Mm-hmm. But when you engage the blunt instrument of the criminal law, which is enforced by police who are trained to use force. Force is another word for violence. Mm-hmm. Onto people, the reaction is more violence. When mm-hmm. you as a society decide to respond to a social problem with violence, the reaction is more violence, mm-hmm. not less violence. And so I think that is really highlighted in, in instances of HIV criminalization, For example, I mean, then I think one of the things I tried to do is dispel myths with my project. So I interviewed for my PhD research people living with HIV who have been alleged to not disclose their HIV status um, from people across Canada. Many of them are registered sex offenders um, now, had been incarcerated for long periods of time, and some had been incarcerated under remand, which is pre-trial detention, but then were released later. And one of the things that is highlighted is that all of those people that I talked to, no one had any intent to hurt anyone else, harm anyone else, or deceive anyone else. The stigma of HIV is the thing that got in the way. So mm-hmm. one Indigenous young woman I interviewed she uh, got HIV, was extremely distraught and depressed about the idea of having HIV because of how stigmatizing HIV is. She was unable to articulate her that to her sex partner, this guy she would fool around with and they would get drunk and high and hang out and have sex. She handed him a condom. This was her way of disposing. She didn't have any intent to harm him. She handed him a condom. He didn't use the condom she had no power to assert the use of the condom. Um, She Mm -hmm. is now a registered sex offender. She spent years in jail. She gave birth to someone, a baby in jail because because of how we treat HIV using the criminal justice system. The man never acquired HIV from her. And so I think... That's the reaction of the criminal justice system when it's imposed on uh, HIV. And one of the things you see is that, um, or communicable disease in general, is the criminal law combined with a communicable disease or the fear or the threat of having a communicable disease, like a public health, a perceived public health threat, along with a criminal threat, only amplifies forms of criminalization. It makes the person be, the stigma of that person be understood as a more of a heightened threat. Mm-hmm. And the consequence is harsher penalties, more incapacitation, more punishment, and more violence on those people's lives. And so I think it's even one of the things that I think is 
it's not interesting, but it's important for us to look at when we look at HIV criminalization is it's not it's not more it's not unique unique in how it operates. Anyone who's criminalized for anything in Canada, if it's homelessness or sex work or drug use, experiences um, this form of these forms of violence. But I think HIV combined with the threat of communicable disease just amplifies the way in which the the criminal justice system works, which is just amplifies the forms of violence, marginalization, and stigma that people face. And so I think it can just kind of shine a light onto the harms of criminalization in general. And I think, thank you for, you really said that so clearly. I think people are surprised maybe because they don't experience that stigma to hear. Like I remember when I was talking to young people living with HIV, we had a um, in collaboration with a, a lot of different community groups, we went to a retreat and the workshop on criminalization, every single person wanted to go there and spent, it was the most well-subscribed youth <clears throat> session, which is so, in some way, yes, it's liberating, but it's also heartbreaking that that mm-hmm. is, instead of thinking about other things that adolescents and young people should be thinking about, they're worried about criminalization. And so many people have, and, and, you know, when I describe this, when anybody asks me about this, I'm like, do you realize that a lot of people with HIV, including young people, adolescents, are having to like tape record and save evidence that they disclosed or do it in front of a doctor? Like, it's so, mm-hmm. it's so stressful and um, like not evidence-based. So how would you say to the general public like why should they care like if this is something happening to somebody that they don't know or not themselves how 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 do we show that this is important for every single person Mm -hmm. in the world to think about yeah it's interesting i think about this so um I've had HIV my entire adult life, and um, when I first tested positive, um, one of the first things that was burned in my brain was uh, seeing an HIV criminalization case in the news in the U.S. And so my entire adult life, my sex life has been dictated by the power of the police and the criminal justice system. I've never thought of I've never engaged in sex in a way without thinking of the power dynamics of the state overlooking everything that I'm doing. I don't think that's a normal occurrence for most people. And I think I would ask people to reflect on that and think about what that means. And I think every person living with HIV in Canada and in other countries understands their sex life in that way. And it's dictated by uh, a potential threat at any time of uh, of police intervention. And I say to people that um, today in Canada, HIV is not the problem. HIV is not going to cause, I, I have access and privilege. HIV, the b- virus, is not going to be the thing that causes and my body any harm at this point. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's going to harm me as a result of having HIV at this point in my life is the police or the criminal justice system that would cause me some form of violence um, or also stigma from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, The virus itself is not the problem and people living with HIV are not the problem. It's these power structures put in place in a society that target 
marginalize, stigmatize, surveil, and aim to control and incapacitate people that are considered threats. But we know that people living with HIV take care of each other's health mm-hmm. once they're tested and they know. We yeah. know that. There's so um, much evidence there. Yeah. And yeah. No one has any intent to do any harm. And I think, I think the thing um, to think about is that people living with HIV, there's 65,000 of us in Canada, um, live under constant threat of, of uh, police intervention um, and that causes insecurity, instability, and has all kinds of social consequences that are harmful. And any form of criminalization has those forms of social consequences that are just take rip apart the fabric of our society. And I think it's important to consider that. <laughs> no, I think, and, and I, I feel like that is a perspective that is so uh, important is that Stigma actually looks like laws that confine people in the way that they can engage in relationships that move around, um, relate with one another. So, because you know, I was going to ask you, but I think you've really, you've really explained what this looks like. It looks like people um, constantly being uh, monitored, and, mm-hmm. and freedom and privacy is not like relevant um to to certain people so i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to to i mean you really kind of address this point but what this looks like that people might recognize are the laws is there anything else you think that is important to note and, and how you you're you're seeing what stigma looks like today yeah well i think stigma sometimes it's like seems like this like um abstract idea And I think one of the things that I've been trying to do is make it really tangible for people. And so my work is really about violence and the everyday Mm -hmm. violence that people face as a result of stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that really brings it down to a visceral level where people understand. Stigma is like turning yourself into police because you have been told that your ex-partner has said that you didn't disclose when you did disclose. And then the police beating you up because you're black and saying that you're a racist with AIDS. Or sorry, you're a a rapist with AIDS. That's what stigma looks like. Stigma looks like being incarcerated in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day um, because you have HIV and you allegedly didn't disclose to your partner who didn't end up getting HIV. And then having guards beat you up. Um, on a daily basis, calling you a rapist and saying mm-hmm. they would never touch someone with AIDS except with their boot. Oh. Stigma looks like um, people who are then released from prison trying to go getting get housing and being told that landlords won't rent to rapists and having that poor landlord beat them up. These are all instances in my research that I've encountered, and this is what stigma looks like in the daily lives of people living with HIV because of criminalization. I'm so grateful you you actually just spelled that out that stigma is violence and and we need to remember that instead of it just maybe being more abstract of a concept but it's mm-hmm. actually physical sexual state violence. Mm-hmm. Um so what can we do about this? What do you want people listening to this to do? How do we stop um, devaluing 
certain people, whether it's people with HIV, whether it's people who use drugs, whether it's sex workers, whether it's racialized um, people and indigenous people in Canada, what can we do? I think we have to have conversations about this. I think we have to um, dispel people's ideas. I think we have to really think through what are alternatives in society to dealing with complex social Mm -hmm. problems. A reliance on the criminal justice system is not the answer. And also a reliance on public health is not always the answer. Mm -hmm. Public health has similar kinds of approaches that the criminal justice system does. Mm -hmm. And public health isn't always the answer. And I think public health can have or have underlying it a carceral logic that is like tied to the Mm -hmm. criminal justice system. We see this right now with COVID enforcement. One of the things tied to enforcing COVID is a jail term. And this is in the context of a public health emergency enabled under public health law. Um, So we see very intimately that the public health system is intertwined with the idea that putting people in jail is the appropriate way to deal with a complex social problem. Um, And so I think in order to deal with issues of criminalization specifically and stigma around disease, we need to undo some of the ways of thinking that lead to these kinds of things. And that's undoing the idea that people living with HIV need to be controlled and incapacitated and, and surveilled in really harsh, coercive ways by the state. And I think we need to think of better ways and more community-centered ways located in ways that support people um, and are done in con- consultation and with people's consent. Um, that's what I would think. I love that answer. And also, <clears throat> did you want to describe to the listeners your policing the pandemic, which is so fascinating, and it's you're doing so much work. To, I'm so impressed so quickly to track uh, all the criminal cases uh, about COVID transmission. Yeah, it's um, well, it's actually so. I was just concerned when uh, COVID COVID stuff started to be enforced, and when working with my colleague Alex Lupscom at the University of Toronto in the Department of um, socio-legal studies, um, and uh, we started just tracking all of the cases. So most of um, across Canada, and we visually put it on a map at policingthepandemic.ca, and um, we are trying to just understand how police enforcement is working. In certain jurisdictions, police are sharing COVID-positive data, or sorry, health departments are sharing people's COVID-positive status with police. Wow. Um, across Ontario, that's happening. Recently, the TTC distributed an alert saying not to pick up a black COVID-positive homeless woman um, with her picture. Oh, my Um, goodness. And so there's an unprecedented scale-up of police power across Canada, but also an unprecedented thing such as sharing of health data with police. Um, And so we wanted to kind of just understand how this is happening. And so far, we're mainly looking at incidents of enforcement of social distancing rules. So there's like over a hundred or a thousand, more than a thousand, probably 2000 now, um, instances of uh, social distancing alleged violations. But then there's also uh, cases of criminalizing people for threatening, threatening to give someone else COVID or being a threat to police. And so it's kind of a... And in no instance has, has that I've looked at so far has COVID actually been some like no one has been COVID positive. It's just the threat of communicable disease to someone else. So far that we our tracking has been like looking at how 
disproportionately um, homeless people are being targeted and indigenous people being targeted. The criminal justice system and policing uh, operates always this way. And so we wanted to just highlight how it was mm. operating and figure out what's going on. <laughs> I even noticed in the park, uh, I live up by Eglinton and Weston, in the Eglinton Flats areas, there's, you know, the parks are closed and then there's actually um, police and then city uh, vehicles um, patrolling the parks. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's it's very challenging in, in when we have this huge green space and we're at home and we're not allowed to walk in the parks. So mm-hmm. it's... And that's just walking. And obviously there's people who, who sleep and who spend a lot of their days in the parks too. So that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it is parks are being heavily monitored, but we also know in Montreal that police have gone to sex workers homes who have been working out of their homes and given them just tickets under the public health act. Wow. Um, we know police have been ticketing homeless people um, in Hamilton and Toronto and in Montreal um, so uh, there's a park in downtown Toronto where people have been going because the main uh, supervised injection site has been closed yeah. down, which is where people would spend most of their days. So and now they have nowhere to go. So they've been hanging out with their families, essentially, their, their mm-hmm. chosen families um, in public because they don't have access to privacy because they don't have a place to go. And police are ticketing those people, which is just a shocking approach to deal with the public health issue. So Absolutely. we've been trying to monitor that and figure out what's going on. Thank you for doing that. I, My partner and I were driving downtown to pick something up and we drove by a homeless shelter and there was a lot of people lined up, I think, for food. And we were just like, physical distancing is, is really not possible for everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's people who are riding the TTC. There's people who are working um, mm-hmm. without masks at Home Depot and people are needing to live. And there's also people needing to get food and, mm-hmm. you know, with other people. So uh, thank you for your leadership in this. You know, Thanks. I think it's really important that you're showing across health issues that this is not the way forward mm-hmm. for health or human rights. Yeah, no, it's not. It's just, it's a terrible approach. So I'm, I'm just, anything I can do to stop policing of, of communicable disease, I will do. <laughs> Thank you. So I have a few wildcard questions sure. okay. that are fun. That are... That. <laughs> so one of them is, what is your favorite Netflix or movie that you're watching these days? This is oh, wow. good to know you, Alex. <laughs> um, I really, really love Scott and Bailey. It's a British cop drama um, despite, despite that I, um, I do a lot of my work to counter policing one of my favorite things to do is watch police dramas <laughs> that's awesome what do you like about it what's fun about it well that one has two really good female leads they're complex nuanced messy characters who are like very real and relatable um nice. I also I'm I'm uh my mother's British citizen and I'm a dual citizen, um, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean anything anymore. But for some reason, <laughs> I'm really drawn to British British crime dramas, British shows. And- okay. I, you know, my mom's also, my mom's from England, my dad's from Scotland. So I will look at that up. Second question is, if you could go anywhere in the world 
I mean, we're imagining there's no COVID restrictions and have dinner with anybody living or dead at any point in history, who would you pick and where would you take them for dinner? Wow. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I guess I would go to have dinner with Foucault in Buenos Aires. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Have you been to Buenos Aires? I haven't. I really want to go. Yeah, I've not been either. I'd love to go. Okay. And my uh, final question for the wild card is, is there any advice that you've ever received that you found super helpful that you want to share or any advice you just feel like sharing? (laughs) Oh, okay. I got advice once from Sarah Flicker, my um, master's supervisor about writing. She's my favorite. I love her. New York Um, University. We'll put a link to her on this podcast. And maybe I'm telling this story wrong, but I hope not. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> um, but she always told us as uh, master's students, this is for people writing, um, that she had um, a relative who defined herself as being slutty. And her relative um, used the, the outfit ethos or the outfit mantra of shorter, brighter, tighter as, ah. her, slutty, as her slutty outfit look. And Sarah would be like, I want all my master's students to adopt this as their writing mantra, shorter, brighter, tighter, inspired by her slutty relative. So (laughs) I like to give that advice to people about writing. You can always make it shorter, brighter, and tighter. (laughs) I love that. I think about how we talk to you, at least like brighter, (laughs) shorter is often good to me. And the other piece of advice that I think is really important that I got from Zoe Dodd, who I love, activist, oh, she's and um, also did her master's with um, with Sarah Flicker, and um, is that we have to big each other up because though we're in a world where we're actively under threat and being destroyed by many different forces, and we have to be our own champions. So we have to be our own hero, our own like big up teams, our own um, mm-hmm. give each other props all the time and and really uh, do that for each other and build each other's confidence instead of trying to pick each other down all the time. So I think that is something I think about all the time, just really trying to create a context of support for people I work around and really big each other's work up because we need to do that for each other because no one else is going to. I love that. And I also want everybody to read your work because you are so amazing. So I hope that you'll give me some links where people can access all of your incredible, groundbreaking, world-leading work. So I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful you took the time. Thank you for talking to me. You are in high demand. You've done so much media. So I really appreciate you joining this this podcast and who knows maybe in six months i'll i'll revisit you and where we're at with police that would be fun i would love to (laughs) it's so nice that you asked me to be here i really appreciate it and i I echo all the things back to you about your work i'm really inspired by you and it's really nice to talk to you about this stuff thank you for listening to everybody hates me let's talk about stigma a podcast hosted by dr carmen logie Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.